The scripture for our message this evening is 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. If you're using one of the church Bibles, that's page 324. The title of the message tonight is Help. I'm not doing enough for God. David has replaced Saul as the king of Israel. Jerusalem has been established as the capital city. A grand palace has been built for David. God has given Israel victory over all of their enemies. Things are good for David. And David wants to do something good for God. That's the setting of the scripture we're looking at this evening. 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 through 17. Please stand, if you are able, for the reading of God's holy word. Now it happened when the king inhabited his house, and Yahweh had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I inhabit a house of cedar, but the ark of God inhabits tent curtains. So Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for Yahweh is with you. Now it happened in the same night that the word of Yahweh came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says Yahweh, Are you the one who would build me a house to inhabit? For I have not inhabited a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been going about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone about with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? So now, Thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I myself took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in their own place and not be disturbed again. And the unrighteous will not afflict them anymore as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Yahweh also declares to you that Yahweh will make a house for you. When your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up one of your seed after you, who will come forth from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will reprove him with the rod of men and the strikes from the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not be removed from him, as I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. 
And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Please be seated. Thirty years ago today, my memo passed away. The last time I saw her alive, she was sitting in a wheelchair. She had suffered a stroke and she was a resident at the Myrtles in Columbia. She had lost her ability to speak. Just every now and then she'd managed to get a word out. And I had gone by to see her because I was leaving for Louisiana. Her wheelchair was in the doorway of her room and I was standing in the hall. I was getting ready to leave. And as I started to go, I saw tears were running down her face. And I said, I'll be back to see you soon. And she spoke as clearly as she had ever spoken in her life. You don't know. I never saw her alive again. There's so much I should have said to her. It was her sacrifices, her love, her prayers that sustained me through the hardest years of my life. I can't count the number of times this woman got me out of a mess. I should have done so much more to show her my love and gratitude. And sometimes... I feel the same way about God. Sometimes I feel like I don't do enough to show God my love and gratitude. I wonder if you've ever felt that way. He's been good to you, hadn't he? In more ways than you could possibly count. As a matter of fact, God's been good to you in an infinite number of ways you're not even aware of. From the breath you take. To the food you eat. To the clothes on your back. You owe it all to him. And that doesn't even take into account your salvation and your spiritual blessings. He has been good. Just stopping to consider that can make you feel grateful. But you know what else it can make you feel? It can make you feel guilty. Like, I don't do nearly enough to show God my love and gratitude. What should we do when we feel that way? Is that God's way of telling you that you ought to do more for Him? Get busy? This chapter we're looking at tonight is one of the most important chapters in all of the Bible. In this chapter... God makes a covenant with King David. And in the process, 
God teaches us one of the most fundamental truths in all of Scripture. And here it is. Your relationship with God is not based on what you do for Him, but what He does for you. That is not just the heart of this chapter. That is the heart of the gospel. That's the heart of the whole Bible. This truth is going to become clear to us as we look at three principles given to us in these verses. Here's the first principle. God's people should desire to do good for Him. God's people should desire to do good for Him. Listen, it's more than appropriate that the people of God should want to do good things to, to honor and please God. In verse 1, we learn two things. David's palace was complete. He was now living in it. In 2 Samuel 5, verse 11, we read this. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David with cedar trees and craftsmen of wood and craftsmen of stone walls, and they built a house for David. So Jerusalem is the capital city. David has built a palace. The second thing we learn is that God has given Israel rest from their enemies. God had given David victory over all of the surrounding nations, and the people were enjoying a time of peace. There were no outside threats to Israel's welfare. So I picture David sitting on the roof of his palace, sipping a glass of iced tea, and the thought occurs to him, here I am living in a palace while the Ark of the Covenant is in a tent. The Ark of the Covenant represented the very presence of God among His people. It was still in the tabernacle, which was a tent. Now, it was about as magnificent a tent as you could imagine, but it was still a tent. It was not a permanent structure. I mean, how could David live in this magnificent palace of stone and cedar while the ark of God is in a tent? God's dwelling place among his people should be the most glorious, magnificent structure in all the land. The ark of God should be in a temple. Even the pagan nations all had temples for their gods. The Philistines had a temple for their god, Dagon. And those weren't even real gods. How much more should the true and living God have a temple? So David shares his concern with the prophet Nathan. And David goes to Nathan. Basically, he's seeking God's permission to build a temple. Verse 3. So Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for Yahweh is with you. Apparently, Nathan didn't even take the time to consult God. Is this God's will? Look, David wants to do something good for God. David has a heart to honor the Lord. 
I mean, how could God be opposed to that? So Nathan gives David the go-ahead. Well, ultimately, it wasn't God's will for David to build the temple. But I, I want you to see this. David's desire to build the temple, David's desire to honor God was good. The fact that David wanted to do this for the Lord was both right and pleasing to God. That's exactly what David's son Solomon said when the temple was finally built. 1 Kings 8, 17 and 18. And it was in the heart of my father David to build a house for the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. But Yahweh said to my father David, because it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. It pleased God that David wanted to do that. What's the point? You should desire to do good for God. During his rookie year, Major League Baseball player Brady Singer wrote a letter to his parents. In the letter, he's thanking them for all that they invested in him and in his dream of playing baseball. They had driven countless miles to practices and games and tournaments. They had spent a fortune on hotels and gas and food and equipment. And there was no way to calculate the time they had invested in him and his baseball. He knew he could never repay them for all they'd done. But in the letter, he told him he wanted to do something good for them. So he paid off their mortgage along with every outstanding debt they had. His parents were shocked and they insisted this is not necessary. And it wasn't. But was it good that he wanted to do that? For his parents? Absolutely it was good. How much more should we want to do good for the God to whom we owe everything? You know when you feel in your heart you ought to do something for the Lord? In light of all he's done for you, you, you can't help but think you, you ought to show your love and gratitude by honoring him in some way, that's a good thing. You ought to feel that way. I, I would be worried about you if you didn't feel like you ought to do good for the Lord. You want to give to the Lord? Good. You want to serve the Lord? Good. You want to do something to demonstrate your love and gratitude to Him? Good. Listen, it's only a problem when you start to feel like your relationship with God is based on the good you do for Him. Now that leads us to the second principle I want to show you in these verses. God's concern is for the good of His people. God's concern is for the good of His people. 
Yes, it was good that David wanted to build a temple for God. But that is not what God had planned. Verse 4. Now it happened in the same night that the word of Yahweh came to Nathan saying, Go and say to my servant David, thus says Yahweh, Are you the one who would build me a house to inhabit? Now, God's not upset with David in any way. He calls him my servant. This is a term God uses for those who are faithful to him. Listen, it's possible that you may want to do something good for God and the thing you want to do might be really good. For example, you may want to go to Africa to share the gospel of Jesus. That's good. But God may want you to go next door instead of Africa. Verses 6 and 7, what we see is God had a greater priority than having a temple to dwell in. In all the history of God's dealings with his people, he had never had a temple. During the Exodus, there was no temple. In the days of Joshua, when the people were occupying the land of Canaan, there was no temple. During the period of the judges, Gideon, Samson, even Samuel, there was no temple. And now that there was a king, there's still no temple. God had never had a temple. There had been no permanent fixed structure where the presence of God dwelt among his people. Why? Look at verse 6, the end of the verse. I have been going about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. God had remained mobile, on the go. The tabernacle could be transferred from place to place. God, listen, this is important. God couldn't settle down while his people remained unsettled. Dale Ralph Davis wrote this, listen. Do you see what Yahweh is saying about himself? He is the God who travels with his people in all their topsy-turvy here and there journeys and wanderings. Do his people live in tents? So does he. Are they pilgrim people on their way to the land of promise? So he is the pilgrim God, sharing the rigors of the journey with them. Look at verse 7. Wherever I have gone about with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? God had never instructed any of Israel's leaders to build him a temple. Why? God wasn't going to rest until his people had rest. God's concern wasn't having an established dwelling place for himself. All of creation can't contain God. God's concern was having an established dwelling place for his people. As long as God's people remained unsettled, moving about from place to place, God would remain unsettled moving about from place to place. Wherever God's children went, He went with them. Whenever they had a need, He was there to provide. 
In every hardship, he was there to see them through. In every threat, he was there to deliver them. Listen, God couldn't have a permanent residence until his people had a permanent residence. He had to be with them. They needed him. God was concerned with doing what was best for his people. Do you see why God had never had them build a temple? I couldn't eat knowing my baby girl had nothing to eat. Could you? I couldn't lay my head on my pillow at night if my baby girl didn't have a safe place to sleep. Could you? I couldn't spend money on a vacation if I knew my baby girl barely had enough to survive. Could you? It really shouldn't surprise us to find out God feels the same way about his children. Did it? Listen, you ought to do good as a way of showing love and gratitude to God. It's good to do good. But you must understand God's primary mission is not to get you to do good things for Him. From Genesis to Revelation, it is God who is doing good for his people. You see, it's good to do good for God, but God's concern is for the good of his people. Beyond just having a concern for his people, God has taken action to secure the good of his people. Here we see the third principle taught in these verses. And this is the heart of this passage. The third principle is this God has provided for the good of his people. God has provided for the good of his people. These verses, 8 through 17, record what we know as the Davidic covenant, God's covenant with David. God makes a promise to David that eternally secures the welfare of his people. This is a promise that finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus' eternal reign as king. The first thing I want you to notice in verses 8 through 11 is the promise of the covenant. In verses 8 and 9, God is rehearsing the grace of God he has shown David. Verse 8, So now thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I myself took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. David was just a shepherd, remember? The youngest of all of his brothers. No one but no one would have picked David to be the king of Israel. But God did. God elevated David from the pasture 
to the throne. Not only that, God blessed David in everything he did. He gave David victory over all his enemies. Oh, but God wasn't done showing his grace to David. There are two more brief promises made. One is in the latter part of verse 9. You see it? I will make you a great name. The second is in verse 11. Yahweh will make a house for you. You have those two promises, verse 9 and verse 11. I will make you a great name and Yahweh will make a house for you. Isn't that ironic? David wants to build a house for God. And God says, no, I'm going to build a house for you. Of course, God is not speaking of a physical house. He's talking about David's royal dynasty. David's name will be great as his descendants continue to reign as king over God's people. Now, if you'll notice those two brief promises to David, which really are the same promise, they're separated. One's in verse 9 and one's in verse 11. Between those two promises, God makes a series of promises to his people. One, God would give them their own place, their own land. Verse 10, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them. Two, they will not be disturbed again. There'll be no wicked nations ever again to torment God's people. If you know the history of Israel, you know that they had been almost constantly dealing with the threat from pagan nations since the time they first entered Canaan. But in verse 10, he says, They will not be disturbed again. Unrighteous nations will not afflict them anymore the way they have even from the day I commanded judges to be over them. So here's the idea. They're, they're not going to be afflicted and tormented by pagan nations. They're going to have their own land. Three, God would give them rest from all their enemies. Verse 11, I will give you rest from all your enemies. They would live in peace and safety. Now, I need you to put your thinking cap on with me for just a minute. God has made these promises to David. I will make you a great name and I will extend your royal dynasty. Basically the same promise. In between those two promises, we have all these promises to Israel. Promises of a land, promise of peace and rest, promise of safety from all these pagan nations. What's going on here? What's going on in the way he gives these promises? This is what I want you to see. It is by raising up a royal dynasty for David that God will accomplish the good things he has planned for his people. In other words, God's saying, David, I'm going to build you a house. Not just for your sake, but I'm going to do it to secure the welfare of my people. You understand? God is establishing the welfare of his people through the promised king that will reign over the house of David. A king would come and bring peace 
and prosperity like the people had never known. That's the promise made to David. And who is that future king that God promised? He is Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, the title Christ is the word that identifies him as that promised king. But there's more here than just the promise of the covenant. This is the most wonderful part. We also see the permanence of the covenant. The prom Listen, the promise of God made to David wasn't a temporary peace and prosperity kind of promise. No, the reign of this coming king, this promised king would endure forever. I want to point out several things. First of all, the king and his kingdom will endure despite death. Verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, that's a picture of death, I will raise up one of your seed after you who will come forth from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David would die. His sons after him who reigned as king over the next 400 years or so would also die. But the house of David would endure despite the death of all the kings. One from David's line, God promised, would reign forever. But it wouldn't happen through an endless succession of kings in the line of David. You understand what I'm saying? When he said, your descendants will rule on the throne forever, he's not saying you'll have one descendant after another to reign as king and you'll always have a descendant on the throne. No, no, no. God is promising that one king will reign as king over the house of David forever, despite death. How is that possible? How could one king rule over God's people for eternity? How is it that death can't even stop this king? Because there was one king who died and rose again, never to die again. He conquered death. And so reigns forever. Revelation eleven fifteen. Then the seventh angel sounded. There were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. The king and his kingdom will endure despite death. Why? Because our king is bigger than death. He conquered death. Also notice this, the, kingdom, the king and his kingdom would endure not only despite death, but despite sin. Verses 14 and 15, I will be a father to this king. He will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will reprove him with the rod of men and the strikes from the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not be removed from him as I removed it from Saul, 
whom I removed from before you. Sin would continue to plague the kings in David's dynasty, beginning with his son Solomon. And as he promised in these verses, God disciplined them for their sin. But the promise of a king endured despite the sin of the people. Here's the question. Why didn't sin put an end to the promise of a king? Because the promised king put an end to sin. You understand? How is it that sin, that sin didn't stop the promised king? Because the promised king stopped sin. Hebrews 9, 26 tells us, And Jesus appeared once to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The king and his kingdom would endure despite death despite sin and notice this the king and his kingdom will endure despite time verse 16 your house your kingdom shall endure before me forever your throne shall be established forever having conquered both sin and death the King of Kings will occupy the throne of glory for all the endless ages of eternity. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not be taken away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Daniel 7, 14. Think about this with me. David wanted to build a house for God. What David wanted to do was good. But God said, no, I'm going to build a house for you. Now, don't miss this. Our salvation... All the promises of God rest on the one God sent as a fulfillment of that promise. You understand? Jesus Christ. The Christian faith in its entirety is based on what God has done, is doing, and will do for us through His Son. I want to say that again. The Christian faith in its entirety is based on what God has done, is doing, and will do for us through His Son. When you stop and you consider all that He has done for you, it really is easy to feel like you just aren't doing enough for Him. The desire to do good for God is a good desire. But you must never lose sight of the fact that your relationship with God is based not on what you do for Him, but on what He does for you. So here's the takeaway. Do good for God, but never forget your relationship with Him is based on what He does for you. 
Do good for God, but never forget that your relationship with Him is based on what He does for you. So when you feel like you aren't doing enough for God, I want you to stop and think about something. What is enough? How do you know when you've done enough for God? Could you ever do enough for God? No. But your relationship with God doesn't depend on you doing enough. What Jesus did was enough. Because of Him, you and I are free to serve God. Free to show our love and gratitude to Him with our words and actions. And you don't have to worry if it's enough. So take every opportunity that you have to do good for God. Show God your love and your gratitude every chance you get. Do what you can, when you can. Not because your relationship depends on it. It doesn't. So stop worrying about doing enough. There is no enough. Enough doesn't exist. Just do good for God. Out of love and gratitude for the fact that what He has done for you in Christ has been, is, and always will be enough. Let's pray.